I read a story this week about a man who broke his arm and his friends were saying, hey, what happened? And he was trying to give them this convincing story um, that was not entirely true, that he was reaching through the window um, in a car and he thought the window was down, but it was up. Anyway, this is the real story. His wife, one weekend, brought in these potted plants from the patio. And inside one of the potted plants was a garter, garter snake. And when they got inside the house, the garter snake came out of the pot and started slithering across the floor. And this guy's wife screams. And so he hears her, but he's in the shower at the time. And he doesn't even think. He just jumps out of the shower, um, doesn't grab a towel, runs into the living room, and his wife is screaming, the snake, it's under the couch. And so being a good husband, he gets on his hands and his knees to look for the snake. And about that time, the dog comes up behind him with his cold, wet nose. He thinks that it's the snake when the dog touches him with his cold, wet nose, and he faints. Well, his wife thinks that he's had a heart attack. So she calls 911. And then the paramedics arrive on the scene. The guy's still groggy. They put him on the stretcher, and then they're getting ready to, to roll him out the front door. And guess what? The snake comes out from under the couch. And one of the medics is terrified of snakes. So he screams, drops the stretcher, and that's when the guy broke his arm. We live in a world where things get broken. Sometimes it's a broken arm, sometimes it's a broken heart, broken mind, broken relationship, broken life. We live in a world where all kinds of things are broken, a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. The question is why? Why is the world such a mess? This week as I was working on the message, I googled that question, why is the world such a mess? And in one second, I had 225 million results. There's a lot of discussion about why the world is such a mess. And of course, there's no question about it being a mess. All you have to do is look at the news headlines. And I just wanted to share a couple of news headlines from this week, just the last seven days. Um, for example, 62 killed during prison riot in Brazil. Two dead after disgruntled employee opens fire at Walmart in Mississippi. Delta pilot removed from plane on suspicion of intoxication. Severe summer thorns and flash floods hit the northeast. Fire forces boat passengers into shark-infested waters. Natural gas pipeline explodes in Kentucky, and the list just goes on and on. There's no doubt that our world is a mess. And what about your world? What about the events, the people, the circumstances that you are dealing with right now in your life? Because we know this. Some days are good, and some days are not. And sometimes this happens. You know, our life is kind of rolling along, but... We look at the lives of the people we love and their lives are falling apart. Why? Why is the world such a mess? Well, today we're continuing our series called The Big Picture and we're working on developing this Christian worldview. And again, your worldview is how you think the world works and how you fit into it. And this worldview is really important because it's essentially the set of beliefs that you build your life on. It involves what you believe about God, what you believe about people, about yourself, about your future. And I'm so glad that our middle and high school students are here because I said this at the outset, your worldview will determine your trajectory in life. And a worldview answers some really important and foundational questions. We looked at a big question last week, where did I come from? And we, we talked about what it means to be made in the image of God. And if you didn't hear that message, I would encourage you to go to our website and, and just listen to... Um, to the answer to that question from God's Word. Because today we're going to explore a, a new question. It's a really big question. And the question is this, why is the world such a mess? Now, there are a number of typical answers that you encounter to that question. And I just want to share a couple of them. Here, here's the first. 
The reason the world is a mess because of the unfair distribution of economic resources resulting in poverty and crime. Poverty and crime. Here's another answer to the question, why is the world such a mess? Well, because of a lack of education. If we just had more education, things would be better. Here's another answer to the mess the world is in, corrupt governments, politicians, and world leaders. And yet another, um, the reason the world is such a mess is because of unpredictable natural disasters, and they happen all the time. Now certainly these issues are contributing factors to the mess the world is in, but they are not the root cause. And here's something else that is important to remember as we answer this question, why is the world such a mess? The prevailing view is that the problems with the world are out there someplace. The problem is with governments. The problems are with society. The problems are with other people. There was a man, Christian writer, his name is G.K. Chesterton. And one time he was asked this question, what's wrong with the world? And he came up with a very profound two-word answer. In response to the question, what's wrong with the world, he wrote, I am. And you see, that's because he has a Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says that what's wrong with the world begins in the human heart. Now look at this statement on your outline. This is really a biblical answer to why the world is such a mess. The world's a mess because of sinful human nature. And there are many verses in the Bible that support this perspective. One is from the book of Ecclesiastes. It says, not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. And I don't think there's anybody that would dispute that. Now, the question is, why is that the case? And here's the answer. Because all of us, we are all born as fallen and flawed people who by our nature are at odds with God and each other. Now, now church, listen carefully. The prevailing view in America is that people are basically good. And the message from our culture is, listen, if you want to have a, a successful life, you need to follow your what? Follow your heart. Because if you follow your heart, it will always lead you in the right direction. Is that what the Bible says? No, the Bible says we have a heart problem that will not lead us in the right direction. And let me say this before we go further into this message. What we're going to talk about for the next few minutes is a hard truth. It really is, because we're talking about the condition of our hearts. And yet, here's, here's the reality. This is kind of the rest of the story. If we will listen to, understand, and believe this hard truth about who we really are, it will put us on the path to healing and hope. It really will. I can tell you that from personal experience. And many of you know that's true. So I want you to just stay with me here as we take a, a basic look at the human heart. So are you with me? You ready to go? Okay, let me begin with a passage that I think just summarizes so much of what we need to know. And it's found um, in the Old Testament. It's written by King David. Now, he's often called a man after God's own what? God after man's own, a, a man after God's own heart. And here's the thing. King David loved God passionately. But he also had other passions in his life. And one time those passions in his heart, he was following his heart and it led him to commit adultery with one of his best soldier's wives. And then he had this man killed essentially. And when he came to his senses, he said this to God. He said, God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just. Now notice what he says next. For I was born a what? I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Now that is not the prevailing view in America. But it's what scripture teaches, that we come into the world with a defective heart. 
Now, this is really fascinating. I want to show you some verses from Romans chapter 7 written by Paul. Now, Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ in the first century, and this is what he says about the condition of his heart. And this is apparently after he decided to follow Jesus. He still has a battle going on in his heart between his sinful nature and his new nature, and he says this, and I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Now, isn't that your experience? If you're a Christian this morning, isn't that your experience? There's stuff we want to do. We know we should do it. We don't. There's stuff, I shouldn't do that. And that's the very thing we end up doing. Why? Because we have a problem with our hearts. Now, I'd like to do this. I'd like to take a look at three words in the Bible that help explain the condition of our hearts. And here's the first word, sin. Three-letter word with a big I in the middle. Now, the word sin really has to do with a concept from the world of archery. A number of years ago, my wife, Chris, got me a, a compound bow, and I've become an archer. And I love to shoot targets, but I don't always hit the bullseye. Sometimes, in fact, a lot of the times, I miss. But here's the thing. If you're um, in the Hebrew culture and you're shooting an arrow, if the arrow fell short, if it missed the mark, the word for that is the same word for sin. And look at this verse from Romans chapter 3. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you fall short of what God wants you to do, when you fall short of who God wants you to be, when you don't measure up to God's standard, that concept, that idea, is called what? Three-letter word. Can you say it? Sin. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about sin today. So just stay with me. Here's another word that can be translated sin, but it's more specific. It's the word transgression. Transgression. And this is really the exact opposite. Um, sin is kind of falling short. Transgression is when you go beyond the line. God has established this boundary, and you go, you know what? I'm going past it. It's sort of like if you see a speed limit, it says 55, and you go, doesn't apply to me. I'm going to go 85. That would be a transgression. It's this willful disobedience. Or you're a student, and your parents say, you need to be in by midnight. And you watch the clock tick, and you go, you know what? I think I'll come in around 3 a.m. That is a transgression. That's willful disobedience. And we see that in this verse in Psalm 19. Keep your servant also from what kind of sins? Willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. And here's one more word that really helps us understand the nature of the human heart is the word iniquity, another word found in the Bible. And this is essentially the inclination of the human heart to wander away from God. Now, what animal is used to describe the human heart, human behavior in the Bible? I, I'm going to have to go to my office, right? Sheep, exactly. And this is what the scripture says. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. Who's that a reference to? Church, who's that a reference to? If you don't know the answer, who's it probably going to be? Seriously, it is Jesus. It's laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Ever drive a car that was out of alignment and you have to keep your hands on the steering wheel? Because what happens if you take your hands off? It's going to pull to the left. It's going to pull to the right. That's what happens with our heart. We're born with a heart out of alignment with God's will. God says, here's the path I want you to take, and our heart pulls us off the path. Now, think about this if you're a parent. How many of you parents um, have ever um, had to teach your children how to disobey? How many of you have ever had to teach your child to be selfish? Why is that? Because it comes naturally. That is the default condition of the human heart. And when I say, you know, people are not basically good, 
It doesn't mean that people can't do good things and kind things and compassionate things. We can, but that doesn't change the fact that there's something wrong with our heart. And the question is, well, how did that happen? Well, here's how it happened. This is from Romans chapter 5. Sin came into the world because of what one man did. And who is that man, church? Adam. You know, Adam said, you know, God, I see where you drew the line, but I'm going to step over it. Adam and Eve stepped over the line. They sinned against God. And here's the thing. We have followed in their footsteps. Because we're not only born with this inclination to sin, we actually sin. And think about this. Every time you disobey God, every time I disobey God, it causes damage. It damages you. It damages other people. It damages the world in which we live. And the cumulative result of all this damage is one word. Suffering. We live in a world where there is suffering. Now, real quickly, I want to point out three kinds of suffering that we experience in the world. And the first is this. We experience physical suffering. We experience physical suffering. Let me ask you this. Um, why do you get wrinkles as you get older? Why do you need reading glasses? Um, why do you get more aches and pains in your body? Um, one man said that he developed a furniture problem as he got older. His chest fell into his drawers. just want to make sure you're with me here. But, but it's true, right? These earth suits wear out. Why is that? Well, there's a one-word answer. And what is it? Say it like you mean it. Okay, it is. It's sin. And here's how the Bible explains it. Sin came into the world because of what one man did, and with sin came what? Death. See, a Christian worldview really explains things the way they really are. If you're a parent... Um, you've been probably asked this question by your child. Why did Fluffy die? Ever have a pet die? Or a plant? Or maybe Grandma died? And, and the kids go, why? And what answer do you give them? See, the Bible is clear that, that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God said, if you disobey me, you will surely what? Yeah, you will surely die. There's a, there's a cemetery here in, in West Palm Beach and above the cemetery is this sign. I remember the first time that I saw it, and it just arrested my attention, and it says this, something as universal as death must be a blessing. It's posted, you, you walk into the cemetery, and it says, something as universal as death must be a blessing. And I thought, is that true? Well, the Bible says that something <laughs> as universal as death proves that there is a curse, not a blessing, that's fallen on us, and all of creation. And I want to show you a verse about that, because this is important too. It says this, this is in Romans chapter 8, all creation was subjected to God's what? God's curse. How many of you are praying for no hurricanes this year? Okay, why do we have hurricanes, right? I mean, why do we have tornadoes and floods and earthquakes and all this craziness? It's because creation is subject to a what? A curse. See, there's two kinds of evil in the world. There's a moral evil because of the choices that people make, and there's a natural evil, which is what we see in creation with all this stuff that goes on. But there is a glimmer of hope in this verse, and I'm going to point it out. It says, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. See, this is God kind of pulling back the curtain and saying, yeah, things are really bad, right? There's a lot of suffering, but one day... It's all going to change. One day Jesus is coming back and one day he's going to make all things new and there won't be any more death or crying or mourning or pain. And this is that glimpse into, oh, wow, I'm so glad to hear that. But here's the reality. It's not this day. And so we live in a world where there is, what kind of suffering was the first thing? 
physical suffering. Here's another kind of suffering that we experience, emotional suffering. We experience emotional suffering because when Adam and Eve sin, it doesn't just affect their relationship with God, it affects their relationship with each other. And think about this for just a moment, the extent of, of sin. Think about the relationships you have in your family. If you're married, have kids, grandkids, aunts, uncles, just the whole family world, and then your friends, the people at work, maybe the people at school. Do you realize that every single relationship you have has been affected by sin? Your sin and the sins of other people. Now, this is really interesting when you think about it in terms of marriage. Um, if you're married this morning, um, is there any conflict in your marriage? Have you ever had to deal with any conflict in the time that you've been married? Okay? I, I would expect uh, one answer. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. Why is there conflict in marriage? Well, I'll tell you why it doesn't exist primarily. The root cause of conflict in marriage is not your upbringing. It's not your personality. It's not because um, women are from Venus and men are from Mars. The root conflict that you experience in marriage is related to a one-word um, one explanation, three letters, has an I in the middle. What is it? Sin. And listen, if you go to the self-help section of the bookstore, that's not what you're going to read. And I know this from personal experience. You go to many marriage counselors, that's not what they're going to tell you. But the Bible says the root cause of the conflict in your marriage starts right here, in your own heart. First service, um, my wife Chris was sitting on the front row. And I looked at her and I thought, we've been married a long time. And we have worked through a lot of conflict. And uh, we have learned something along the way. We've been married for, well, I'm not going to tell you how many years. Um, over four and a half decades, let me say it that way. But here's what we've realized, and I've learned this from my wonderfully patient wife. Unless you grow up, you will grow apart. And that's really true. Unless you grow up, you will grow apart. Unless you're willing to take an honest look at your heart, unless you're willing to deal with your selfishness and your pride and your sin and your stuff, you are going to grow apart. You're not going to grow up. You're not going to experience the closeness that God wants you to have. And church, I was thinking this week, you know, what was it really like for Adam and Eve before they disobeyed God? We don't know how long that went on. But can you imagine? I mean, they didn't have any stuff to work through. They had no baggage from the past, no sexual history to deal with. They had no um, visits to the in-laws they had to plan. They had, didn't have to deal with discipline issues with the kids. There were no barriers between them. And the Bible says that, that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Now, that's not just talking about being naked physically is talking about being naked emotionally. They didn't have any secrets. They didn't have anything to hide. And that is a picture of God's model for marriage. But it's not just a model for marriage. It's a model for our relationships. It's what it looks like when two people really love each other, when they understand each other, when they trust each other, when they, they're not worried about being hurt or used or lied to. I mean, what, a, what an incredible relationship Adam and Eve had when Adam looked at Eve and said, Eve, you're the only woman in the world for me. He actually meant it. And think about this. They don't have any bills. They don't have any worries. And guys, check this out. You may have never thought about this. I thought about it this week. Adam never had to wait for Eve to get dressed. <laughs> right? I mean, is that paradise or what? But one choice, one choice changed it all. Because one choice damaged what they had. And now there's fear and distrust. This is what the Bible says in Genesis 3, 7. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, 
So what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. This is the first cover-up in human history. And we've been covering up ever since. And here's what I mean. We, we cover up emotionally. We wear these masks so people won't see what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And, and this is really important, church. The response that Adam has to his sin is a pattern that we all follow. Because he does two things when he sins. He hides and he blames. Now think about that. Some of you know the story in Genesis. When he sins, God is walking through the garden, and what is Adam doing? He's hiding in the trees, as if that's going to work. And then when God confronts him, what does he do? He blames, and who does he blame first? He blames God. God, the woman you gave me. It's like, seriously? And then he blames Eve. Well, she gave me the fruit. If you're familiar with the story, um, you'll probably appreciate this observation about what happened. Somebody said, that Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on? That is, that is the story. And friends, according to the story in Genesis, we see a snapshot of the sinful nature that we've inherited. You think about what, what Adam says to God, I was afraid, so I what? I hid. And isn't that our experience? You know, we're afraid that you know, if people really knew us, if you really knew what's in this heart, if you really knew what was in this head, man, you'd be running in the other direction. You wouldn't love me. It wouldn't be possible to love me. And what happens is when things are exposed in our heart, we get defensive, and then we start blaming other people, other things. You know, some of you grew up in a home where there was an extra kid that nobody ever saw. And he had a really unusual name. Not me. Your mom would say, hey, who drew on the wall with magic markers? Not me. Uh, who let the dog in with muddy feet? Not me. Uh, who, who sold Susie's Barbie doll on eBay? Not me. But here's the reality. We have this sinful nature, and so we hide and we blame. And that's why we're lonely. And that's why we're afraid. That's why we're disconnected from each other. And to answer that question, well, why is the world such a mess? Because sin has affected every single relationship on the planet. And that's why we have this emotional suffering. But before it gets better, let me tell you this, it gets worse. Because there's a third kind of suffering that we encounter, and it's called spiritual suffering. Because this is our relationship with God that's torn apart because of sin. This is what the Bible says in Isaiah 59. It says, but your iniquities, we've talked about that, right? Wandering away from God has separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. There was a, a French mathematician. He lived in the 17th century. He was considered to be one of the 10 most intelligent people who have ever lived. His name was Blaise Pascal. And he had this incredible experience with God. He became a Christian and he made this, this observation about human nature. He said, inside every human heart is a God-shaped vacuum. How many of you have ever heard that statement? See, what he was getting at is that, you know, there's, there's something inside us. There's this void that only God can fill. And the reality is that much of the spiritual suffering that we encounter is because we're trying to fill that void with something else. You know, sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's a hobby. Sometimes it's sex or sports or, or people or other things. But it doesn't work. We still have this ache in our heart. Why is that? Because we were made by God for God. You know, last week we talked about the question, where did I come from? Well, God made you in his image. He made you so you could know him and love him. That's what we were made to do, to know God and love God. And whenever there is a barrier between us and God, we know that something is not right. And even when you become a Christian, 
If you are willfully disobedient, there's going to be something you've got to deal with between you and God. In fact, that's what we, we do at our communion service. We give people a time to confess and say, hey, God, um, I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And here's the thing. Unless you understand what's causing this relational rift between you and God, you'll never live the kind of life that he intended. And that brings this church to a final question this morning. What should be our response to the sin in our lives? And here is a response that is so filled with hope and with healing. And here it is. And it, listen, if you don't get anything else in the message, get this one statement. Are you ready? We need to take personal responsibility for our sin and run, run, run to Jesus. Look at this verse. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we are fooling ourselves and the truth isn't in our hearts. But, but, if we confess our sins, the word confess means to agree with God, to say the same thing that God's saying about you. Yeah, God, you're right. Yeah, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I was wrong. If we confess our sins to God, he can always be trusted to do this, to forgive us and take away our sins. Now, how can God do that? How can God just take away our sins? Because Jesus was willing to pay for our sins. And that's the story of redemption, that this God who loves you in the most incredible way sends his son, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Jesus lives a perfect life and then goes to a cross. On the cross, God's willing to put your sin, your failure, your iniquity, your transgressions, all those, everything on Jesus. And Jesus dies the death that you and I deserve. And then he comes back to life and he says, hey, I want you to follow me. I want you to have a new life. But you've got to do something. You've got to take personal responsibility for your sin, for your failure. And then you've got to run to me. And church, let me tell you why this is so, so crucial. The way that you become a Christian is by taking personal responsibility for your sin and running to Jesus. That's where the relationship starts, but it's not a one-time deal. It's a way of life. As you follow Jesus, if you want to grow in that relationship, if you want to become more spiritually mature, if you want God to change your heart, this is what you do every single day of your life. You take personal responsibility for your sin and you run to Jesus again and again. But here's what we often think. This is how we often look at ourselves. You know, if, if other people would treat me better, if my wife or my husband would meet my needs, if my kids would listen, if my parents would listen, if my boss would give me a raise, if I had a different job, then I would be the person God made me to be. You know the problem with that thinking? All those things are out there. They're not in here. They don't deal with the root cause. If you want to become the person that God wants you to be, then day after day you have to take personal responsibility for your sin and your failure. And church, please hear my heart on this. One of the things that I know from, from personal experience is that failure can cripple us. Failure can crush us. And it's not what God wants. And I know that in any, any setting, there are people who are really dealing with things that have happened in the past. Um, I think that's true for, for all of us. And the question is, how do we process that? I mean, how do you process that as, as a Christian, as a believer? Because here's the thing. God doesn't want you to live with guilt. He doesn't want you to live with regret or the shame. He wants you to know the freedom of his forgiveness. How do we experience that? And here is the answer. It's right here on your outline. We need to take personal responsibility for our sin and run to Jesus. And I'll, I'll tell you this. As I was working on the message this week, I was thinking to back, you know, over my life. And I was having a conversation with God, and I was saying, God, I've failed so many times. 
I have failed Chris as a husband. I have failed my kids as a father. I have failed my church family as a pastor. God, you know me. You know what's in my heart. You know all the failure. And it was so encouraging because what I've learned um, in my journey with Jesus is that whenever I'm feeling that sense of failure, what I need to do is say, okay, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility, and Jesus, I'm running to you. Because every time I run to Jesus, he does the same thing. He wraps his arms around me, and he says, hey, hey, I love you still. My love never fails. And that's what I want to encourage you to do this morning when it comes to your failure, when it comes to your guilt or your regret or your shame. Listen, just tell God, yeah, God, I take responsibility for it, but I'm running to Jesus because I want to experience the freedom of his forgiveness. And church, let me say this too. One of the things that I am learning and I have learned is this, that the more I understand God's grace, the more I understand God's forgiveness, the shorter the period of time between when I fail and when I get up. And it's getting really short these days, and I'm really thankful for that because we still continue to fail. But we get up and we go, Jesus, I'm running to you because I know you're going to hug me and say, hey, I still love you. Let's, let's keep going. And here's what I hope you'll remember from the message this morning. When you run to Jesus, when you run to Jesus and he says, I love you still, realize that his love is so powerful, it can change your heart. And his love is so incredibly powerful, church, that it can change our messed up world. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's time for a new beginning. Time to start a fresh page or paint a new picture with our life. Sounds great in theory, but it can seem impossible. Life is messy. The lines have gotten blurred. Maybe we just don't know where to start. We look at the canvas of our lives and see mistake after mistake after mistake. It's overwhelming. When I look at my life with these messy lines and scribbles, it makes me think, is this as good as it gets? There's no eraser that can make this life make sense. What if? What if there was someone that could make sense of our mess? They could take all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our missed opportunities, and make them into a masterpiece. And then I remember, there is Jesus. He gives us a new life. Every day is new. Every day is a blank canvas full of possibility and promise. He takes our canvases, our lives that have been filled up with shortcomings, secrets, tragedies, and embarrassments, and he helps them make sense. When I look at the canvas of my life and I see nothing but disorder and chaos, I have to remember this. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And you know what? He wants to take my hand and bring peace to the canvas of my life. So as we seek to make our mark, let us give God all our scribbles, all our mistakes, 
all our hurts and trust that he will turn our messy lives into a masterpiece, his masterpiece. Church, as we prepare to celebrate communion this morning, it's so good to remember that Jesus invites us to come to him, to come just the way we are with all of our shortcomings, failures, sins. And these are the words of Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And that's what I pray will happen for each one of us this morning as we come to this table to celebrate the great love and sacrifice of Jesus. And let me just read these words briefly from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul, a follower of Jesus, recounts what happened on that night before Jesus went to the cross. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, like we're doing right now, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. You ought to examine yourself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. And church, again, this is an opportunity. This is a, an encouragement to take a look at your heart and to say, God, is there anything in my heart that I need to confess to you? Anything I need to deal with that's a barrier between us? And I'm so glad that we, we get together you know, every month to celebrate Communion, and, and think about the word communion. It means a close connection, right? A close connection with God, a close connection with each other. And what stands as a barrier to that close connection? Our sin. And so this is a wonderful time to say, God, please forgive me. And to hear Jesus as he wraps his arms around you say, I forgive you and I love you still. And those are the words that I hope you'll, you'll hear from, from Jesus this morning as we celebrate his great love together. And let me say this. Um, if you've never trusted Jesus, there's an invitation to come. But you have to do this. You have to take personal responsibility for your failure and your sin and trust that Jesus died on the cross to pay for it and that he's offering you a new life that you receive by following him. So church, with that in mind, can we pray together? God, I just thank you for the grace that is greater than all my sin, all of our sins, God. Thank you for what Jesus has made possible by his sacrifice. Lord, I pray that if anybody here has never trusted Jesus, that right now, that would change. And that in their heart, in their own words, they would just say, God, I need you. I failed, God. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And I know his name is Jesus. So God, I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins, that he came back to life, and I want to give him my life now and follow him. God, whenever anybody sincerely says that to you, you run to meet them and rescue them. You've done that for so many of us, God. Thank you. And God, you continue that work of rescue because, Lord, we still fail you. And Lord, I just pray right now, just collectively, for our church family, Father, in the name of Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us from our sin? Because you said that if we would confess, you would do that. 
But Lord, beyond that, I want to give each one of us a chance personally to do that. So Father, I'm going to stop talking. And Lord, I want to encourage everybody here just to listen for the voice of God. Um, and Lord, I pray this for myself. Lord, if there's anything in my heart that displeases you, show me what it is right now so I can confess it and turn away from it. Father, thank you today for the sure promise that if we confess our sin, we can trust you to forgive us and take our sin far, far away. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our transgressions from us. We rejoice in that today. And God, I pray that as we celebrate the great love of Jesus today, a love that changes us, that changes our world, God, I pray that we will personally experience your presence, your power, your peace, and especially your pardon. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, and I want to now receive this blessing from God's heart to yours. And now may the amazing grace of our Master Jesus Christ, the extravagant, extravagant love of God our Father, and the intimate friendship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you. Amen. Thanks for being here. Go in his peace.